Colossians in the New Testament as we do our study this morning, continuing in the book of Colossians. As you turn to Colossians chapter 1, please. Let me take you back into history, 1854. There was a gentleman by the name of, we'll call him Mr. Rowland, uh, as he was in Haverhill, uh, Massachusetts, and he had a dry goods store. What he wanted to do was to build that business up, but he had built it in a certain part of the town that he was told the city's going to build that way, it's going to move that way and develop. However, the city never did. The development didn't go that way, in fact, it went the opposite. And so he's thinking, how can I drum up business? I want to make this successful. What do I do in order to get more people to come to my business? So he came up with an idea. On July 4th of that year, he was going to do, hire a band and do a parade through town. They'd start at one end, meander through the town, and the idea was people would follow behind this band playing all kinds of patriotic music, and they would end up at his store out front where then he would have a special speaker. He hired one of the best speakers known abroad and there in New England area. He would come, he'd give a speech, open up the doors and be flooded with business. So the day came, hot day, humid day, not like us here, you know, it's hot and humid, and they start on the July 4th, and they do the parade, and instead of the, you know, the dozens and dozens and dozens of people that he thought would come and follow the, the route, most of the people just stayed on their porch drinking their lemonade, and instead of what he had hoped to be a couple hundred, all there was was a couple dozen. They end up at his store, and to make it worse, all of a sudden, the special speaker never showed up. So Mr. Rollin had to improvise. He got up and he gave a speech. He's not a public speaker, but he got up and gave a speech. Something he had memorized from when he was in school. George Washington, soldier, statesman. He gave it. Crowd gave a polite clap. And they left. Hardly anybody walked into the store. He was devastated. His idea, why it was so creative, didn't work. And it didn't take long. Since he couldn't drum up business, he was out of business. Then what happened is he went into real estate. But the day that he had done the parade on July 4th, there was a fellow by the name of Mr. Hunking who was traveling through town visiting relatives and had witnessed this. And out of curiosity, he had come to the store and he asked some questions about this Mr. Rollin, and he was impressed. You see, Mr. Hunking was an investor, and he wanted to start a business in New York City, a dry goods business. But he knew he couldn't manage it. He didn't have the skill set. He wasn't creative. And so when he thought about it, he thought, you know what? That young man, Mr. Rawlings, I should hire him. I should go in business with him. Let him be the manager of the store. I be the investor. So he went back into that area in Massachusetts, talked to Mr. Rawlings, and he agreed. And they started a dry goods store on 6th Avenue in, there in New York City. It grew over a period of time, and it grew over a period of time. And as a result, it became the biggest store in New York City for a long period of time. In fact, it's still there, right at that same spot. You know it because it's named after the original creative idea of the man, Mr. Roland Macy. He was the one that started that place and got it going. Now, over the years, he still did some parades once in a while. Never did them on July 4th. Too hot. People don't do the parades. But he eventually switched it to, and it became tradition to be when? Thanksgiving, when it's not so, so bad weather-wise. You know, in the same way that Mr. Macy needed some assistance to get to be successful, so too the Colossians are an Hindu group of people. They're struggling. They're having some difficulties. Somebody comes beside them, not a Mr. Hunking, but the Apostle Paul. And Paul writes to them a letter and says, here, let me invest in you. Let me help you out. And he's writing from prison. He's going to give them some truth, some explanation of, of God's revelation. 
It's going to combat some of the false teaching that has permeated the church. Particularly, keep in mind, that the false teachers by far that are doing the most damage are what we call Gnostics. Gnostics means knowledge. The Gnostics were know-it-alls. They said that the only people who are spiritual are people who are like them. Really, really well-educated and got into deep knowledge and the deeper truths. And that it was limited to just a handful of people like the Gnostics. And so that teaching was permeating the church. The people are struggling. Paul writes to them to correct some of that. And so as he's going to open up the letter, he's going to start by saying, hey, I'm really thankful for you people. And he praises them, verses 1 through 8. You can look at it. But then he says, I'm going to pray for you, and I am praying for you. And verses 9 through 14 is his extensive single sentence, plus uh, talking about his prayer for those individuals. Follow along as we read this. You just follow as I read out loud. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, remember he's heard about them from Epaphras. He goes, we do not cease to pray for you and to desire. The word desire is a real strong term. We're begging for you. That you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God while being strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness while giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sin. Let's break down the text. Just the prayers, since we're going at a snail's pace, he's praying for those people and he prays for their wisdom. He prays for their walk. And then he prays in verses 12 to 14, he prays for their worship, how they are to be giving praise to the Lord. And as you just take that first sentence and look at what he says, we are praying, we are desiring something for you. We're praying that while you are giving thanks unto the Father. Without going any further, let me point out something. Paul is saying to them that they can have a direct conversation with God. The Gnostics didn't say that was true. The Gnostics said that God is way up here and God created a spirit being, another spirit being, another spirit being, and then this spirit being created another spirit being. And in order to get spiritual truth, you've got to go to one of those spirit beings. You don't go directly to God. But Paul is saying in this passage when he says, hey, listen, you are giving thanks unto the Father. You can talk to God directly. You know, there's some churches that still come out with that idea that you and I can't go to the Father directly. We have to go through some human mediator, some priest or clergyman. We know that's not true, that we can go directly to the Lord. Something else that strikes me, while you are giving thanks, is assuming that those people in the city and the church of Colossae, that they were praising God, that they were involved with that, that they were worshiping him this, fa- this way, that they were doing it on a regular basis. What strikes me as well is Paul is saying to them, I'm praying that even though you are doing this, you can improve. You can improve in this area of your worship, of your praise, of your thanksgiving. Well, we know that's true. Throughout the Old Testament, there are verses after verses after verses about the idea of, come, let's praise the Lord. Let's give him some honor and glory for his wonderful works. Let's give thanks. And it's a repeated theme in Scripture that God's people are supposed to be praising the Lord, giving his his name honor and glory, and lifting him up for his holiness. And that even permeates into the New Testament. 
In the New Testament, we read where Paul is writing to his, his sister church, the church of Ephesus, twin epistle. He says that you are to be giving thanks always. He says it again in Colossians about giving praise. Whoever wrote Hebrews says the same thing. Let's give God the sacrifice of praise. And so time and again, we know that there is opportunity to do better in this area, to praise more, to give greater thanksgiving. In fact, if we're going to be like Jesus Christ, we want to focus on giving God thanks. There is multiple times where we read of Jesus, where Jesus even prays. He says, Father, I thank you that you have revealed truth to commoners, where those who think they are wiser than anybody else, you hid it from them. But you open it up unto the babes. He gives thanks at times when he's ready to eat, distribute food. When he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, he's giving thanks that you always hear me. May I remind you that those of us who claim to be Christ followers, we claim to be Christian, Christ-like ones, if we're going to do that, if we're going to make that claim, then we have to act this way, that like Jesus Christ, we should be giving praise. We should be giving thanks. It should permeate. It should roll off of us very naturally. But that's, that's contrary to our nature. In fact, it's very hard to be a thankful person. Why? Because by our nature, we are not thankful creatures. By our very nature, we want. We expect more. By our very nature, we are individuals that are very easily critical of other people around us, critical of family members, critical of social society as a whole, critical of rulers and, and bosses. We, we have an unthankful spirit. He talks about that, that this is one of the characteristics of us in our natural state of being sinners. Then he warns us, that in the time of the latter days, which I would think you would agree were seeming to be there, he writes and he says, let me warn you that in the last days, there's going to be perilous times. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Would you kind of say this describes 2020? This is a picture of what we're at. But there's, there's another characteristic. He says one of the characteristics of latter-day society is unthankful individuals. Individuals that expect, that believe it's they're deserving, that it's owed to them. And he says not only that, he goes on, he says they're unholy lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Listen, we're living in a day and age that Thanksgiving is not the norm. It isn't in our spirit. It takes a real work of grace and of God to help us to be thankful people. And he's praying, God, please help the Colossians to become more thankful. Help them to become individuals that are maturing in this area of worship. And not just sedentary and saying, I, I've done enough, I've gone, I sang a few songs at church, therefore that's enough. No, Lord, help them to grow. To grow in this area of thanksgiving. Well, uh, Matthew Henry, some of you are familiar with his writings. You have commentaries, things like that. He wrote in one of his, one of his, in fact, in his diary, of a day that he, was, he had an experience. He was robbed. He was preaching from place to place, riding his horse. Uh, some roadman accosted him and uh, held him up at gunpoint and took what money he had. In his diary, this is a mark of maturity. This is, this is discerning. This is an elder statesman in the faith. He wrote, when he's talking about being robbed, he wrote these words, I am thankful that I was never robbed before. 
I am thankful, number two, that although he took my wallet, he didn't take my life. Number three, I am thankful that even though he took all I had, it wasn't much. And number four, I am thankful that I was the one robbed, not the one doing the robbing. Now that's maturity. Most of us, if we were writing about this, we would find all kinds of cause to complaint without finding where is the perspective of giving glory. Where is, in, the, in a bad situation, something to be able to see, is there good that can come out of it? Maturity, growth, even in the area of praise and thanksgiving. That's what Paul is praying for. He is praying for the individuals in the church of Colossae that they would grow in this area of worship. So I have to pause and I have to ask myself, do I pray for a thankful spirit? Do you? Do, do I make it an, a point in my life to say, I need to grow in this area, or have you said, I've done enough? Do you pray and say, hey, help others close to me. Help me to be an influence on them, to grow in praise instead of criticism, instead of complaint. Help me to display a maturing spirit of praise and thanksgiving. And there's so much that we can be thankful for. I am thankful that I'm born in America. I am thankful for the freedoms that we have. Is our nation flawed? Well, sure it is. What nation isn't flawed? I mean, is your home, is your church flawed? Yeah, because you and me, we're there. Okay? We flaw things because of our sinful bent. But we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much even today to be grateful for. Are there troubles? Yes. But do we have freedoms? Do we have liberties? Do other people around the world want to be here? Yeah. Well, what else can we be thankful for? Hey, you're up and around. You're moving about. You're not one of those families sitting at home waiting for a COVID test. You're not an individual that is waiting and dealing with the results and hearing about whether there's cancer or there's disease. We can be thankful for what good health we enjoy. We can be thankful for jobs. Now, come Monday morning, you may not be so thankful when you first wake up. But thank God you have a job. Thank God that you have the ability to work. Thank the Lord that you, that you aren't dependent upon other people solely to take care of yours. You can succeed in your business. You can do your work. You can do farther and you can work for promotion. Thank the Lord for your family and friends. And I love holidays for these, some of these reasons. We get together with family, get together with friends, and we be able to think, okay, this is what's really cool. This is what's important. That it's not about, you know, the, the flowers, it's not about the garden, it's not about the vehicles, it's about people. And God has blessed you, so, so many of you here and watching, with good friends and family. Thank God for it. Thank God for education. Thank God that we, we were taught to read. Thank God that some of you were able to get further education in the area that really interests you. I'm so grateful that, that when I was 16 and I had an interest to be able to preach the Word of God, I was given the privilege and the opportunity to be able to go to schools where I could study the Bible in depth and do that for a period of years. Thank God for teachers. Thank God for that opportunity and privilege. Oh, we can thank the Lord for our homes. We can thank God for the house and the yard. And, and I've shared this with you before, that when we bought our home three, four years ago, you know, there were some things that I'd never had before that I could use. I never had a garage. Now I got a garage. Never had a lawn uh, riding mower. And the day that we signed, 
you know, telling Debbie, I, I want to buy a riding mower. I'm getting old. I need a riding mower. Just so the idea to toot around the yard, you know, just to run around. And we're signing papers, and the people sitting across the table said, we're leaving our riding lawnmower. And it was like, yes. <laughs> and, I'm, and I nudged Deb because, you know, and I kind of whispered, I said, what about a snowblower? And they said, we're leaving our new snowblower too, part of the deal. Yes. And they left a hot tub too. I mean, just it was just, we're so thankful for little things that the Lord gives and throws on top. And those are fun things that we, are, we can praise the Lord for. And you've got your list of what you're thankful for. And, you know, the friends, the people, relationships, jobs, things like that. But that's not where Paul goes. When Paul talks about growing in thankfulness, what he mentions is something really interesting. Maybe, maybe you should come with me like this past week or maybe in the next couple of weeks. Come and, come and sit with me as we sit by the bedside of somebody who's dying, somebody whose life is ending, and listen to what they're thankful for. The cars don't mean much. The cupboards don't mean much. But what they're thankful for is what's ahead. They're thankful for what God has done in their heart and in their life where it really counts. That's where Paul goes with this text. He says, I'm praying that you really become thankful in the areas that it really, really counts. Again, it's not wrong to be thankful for food. We are very thankful for great food like M&M's. Okay, we're real thankful for those things. We are real thankful for the, the blessings physically, but that's not where he starts. If you look at the text and he's saying, here's the areas that I want you to grow in and giving thanks, there's four of them. Can I just help you out by remembering it? Four areas that, that God has worked, four ways, and they're all going to begin with R. The first one is, be thankful that God is ready to you. Ready to you. It's like read up the room, okay? God has ready to you. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, here's an area I want you to grow in. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What's he mean by that? Let's dissect it for a second. He's going to make it clear this is something that God has done. The Father has done, not something that you've done of yourself. This is something that God has done a work in your heart and your life, and it is something that is for every believer. God has readied all. It's not a select group. Remember the Gnostics are saying only a few, only a few. There's only a special few, only us clergy or whatever. He is saying, give thanks because God has made us meet, M-E-E-T. And it's talking about something that God has done. And the word, the verb that he's using is God has made us. At one time in your life, God made you meet. God did something in your life at one moment in your life. And he describes that as helping to make us meet. The word to qualify us. To make us fit. To ready us. To make it so that we can be a part of what? He goes on and talks about a part of a partakers of an inheritance, an inheritance of the saints of light, that God has qualified you to be one who can participate in this inheritance. Now, some might question, what does he mean by the saints of light? Well, basically all that is, he's talked about the Colossians before, I think it's in verse 4, calling them saints. The saints of light are those people who have followed the Lord. Remember, God is light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It is people who said, yes, 
I need in the darkness of my life, I need the light of God's word. And I'm coming to you for the light. And I'm coming to you for the truth, for that, for that cleansing. And he's saying, okay, God hath made us meet. He has qualified us who are the saints of the light for an inheritance that's been set aside for them. And inheritance, he's talking about that idea of something that is, that is set aside, reserved for you. In the New Testament, we get this idea about sons and being heirs. We read in Romans, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are the children, then we're his heir. We're going to get something from him. He mentions in Galatians as well. Because you are sons, you are no longer a servant, but now you are a son, therefore an heir. He makes this comment about something that God has set aside for us. He mentions it in 1 Peter. An inheritance that is set aside because of the living hope that God has given us because he has birthed us into his family. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven. And so he's making it very clear in this text that just like the people of the Old Testament who were wandering in the wilderness, that they looked forward to a land that they would have. We are looking forward to an eternal land that has been re- put in reserve for you and me. That's been done by God. That's been done because he has readied you. He has qualified you. He has put you in the will. He has made it possible for you to be part of that inheritance. And he says, this is something that you couldn't do of yourself. You couldn't work your way into the will of somebody else, but God had to put you in his will. God had to make you his heir. You know, there's, there's the stories that come out of history that people thought they should be a part of some group, but they didn't qualify. Back in the Napoleonic era, there were special troops for the British, special troops for the French, and they called them the, you know, the, the elites, the grand, the grand army elitists. Then there was in the French side, and then there was on the British sides the royal, the royal troops, and these troops had similar qualifications. Well, two young men are going to go, and they're going to sign up for the British troops to fight against Napoleon. And the one was a son of somebody who was in this corps already. He had learned and memorized all the orders, the drills, the rituals that were, they were going with it. And so they went, and they signed up, and then they had to go through the physical exam. And when they went through the physical exam, the buddy was all of a sudden disqualified because he was only 5'10". You see, there was a requirement he had to be six foot two. He was 5'10". He couldn't qualify. His friend whose, whose dad was involved and who had learned all the drills, he said, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, but yeah, I'll let you know how it works. Well, then he went in for his exam and he was disqualified because he was only six foot. Very stringently, he had to be 6'2". Even though he knew all the drills, he didn't qualify. In the same way, you and I don't qualify for the inheritance of heaven in and of ourselves. We fall short. Isn't that exactly what it says in Romans? It talks about, for all have sinned and come short of the glory, the standard of perfection. You might be taller than somebody else in your spiritual morals, but unless you're perfect, you don't get in. Your sin has to be eradicated. It has to be done away with. And he says in this text that God is the one that makes us fit to qualify that makes it possible for us to be heirs. And we should be grateful for that because God readied us. He's prepared us. He's made it possible that we can have the inheritance of heaven. But he's done something else. 
He goes on, he makes another comment. He says, not only has God readied us or made us meet to be the partakers of the inheritance, he hath delivered us, verse 13, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. The word that's used for deliver is the word to rescue. Somebody that's in danger. Somebody that has some tragedy, something risky, something that's right there to snap and gobble them up. And all of a sudden, there's a reaching down of the hand of God and there's rescued them. And he talks about this idea of rescue with a verb that is used that is never used in the New Testament except for of God. It's only used of God. In fact, it becomes a title of his in Romans 11 where it talks about he is the deliverer, the rescuer. And as we think about it, he says, okay, God has rescued us from the power of darkness. What is that? That power could mean domain, jurisdiction, the authority of could that be hell? Possibly, because hell is, a, is the darkness for eternity, cast off where there is no light. But I think it's probably more than that. It is that idea of the spiritual world, Satan. We know that elsewhere in the twin epistle. He talks about Satan and being the rulers of darkness, where he makes comment, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against rulers in high places, rulers of darkness. And so what he seems to be implying in this text, and he's going to mention it later in the epistle, is there is a spiritual realm around us that is very organized, but is antagonistic towards the Father, towards light, towards truth. And that spiritual realm, that, that rulers of darkness are also antagonistic against people. They want to keep them in darkness. They want to keep them in bondage to self and desires and not experience a freedom and a peace, and a, a life without guilt. And so he's going to make comment about that, and we know that, that all of us, we have a bent towards that darkness. Men love darkness rather than light. And so we often, you know, many of us have followed that path, have been under that influence. But he's saying in this text, but God has delivered us. God has rescued us from that darkness, not some religious institution, not some creed or doctrinal statement, not something that you and I have done on our own efforts. It's not the idea that, that you know, we have rescued each other. He says very clearly in the text, who, referring back to God, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. This is a work of God in our hearts and in our lives. That God has said, I'm going to make you fit to qualify for heaven. And in that process, it involves, I rescue you. I rescue you from the power of darkness. And it happens one time in your life. Again, he uses the verb. That isn't like a process that he is always rescuing us. Some moment, sometime in your life, there has to be a spot where God rescued you. Where God has made you fit to become into the kingdom of God. Just like there's some moment in your life where you had a physical birth. There's some moment where you need a spiritual birth. Just like at some moment in your life that you said, I do, and you became done because you got married at that moment. There's a day, there's a time, there's got to be a one moment time in your human history spiritually where you are all of a sudden rescued by God. And this is for all believers, not just for a select few like the Gnostics would say. But not only did he ready you, not only did he rescue you, he goes on, he adds to it. He says that God has also relocated us. He's relocated us. And look at what he continues on. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and who hath translated us into the kingdom of, this, of his dear son. 
literally the last few words of his beloved son. That God has translated us. Those who are Star Trek fans, makes perfect sense. That God has beamed you from one spot to another. The idea is he's moved you, he's relocated you, he's transplanted you. This would make a lot of sense to the people who are sitting there in Colossae. You see, just a century or so before, the ruler of that region, Antiochus II, he transplanted 2,000 Jewish families from Babylon into this area of Colossae to help build the city. And so many of them now in this next two generations, they're calling themselves transplants that were not native to this area. So he uses a word that they're familiar with. He says, this is what God has done for you. God has moved you, created your residency from one spot. He has now put you to be, make you citizens in another spot. I have moved you. I have relocated you. I have transplanted you. I have created a reserved spot for you, a home for you. Boy, does that make sense? Where he says that in my father's house are many mansions and I go and do what? I prepare a place for you, the believer. And that's what he's referring to. That God not just rescued you and got you out of this bondage spiritually, but he's also relocated you into a realm and into a place where you can live this life of pleasing him. Let me see if I can take you back into history that some of you have no clue about. But back in the late 70s, early 80s, some of you remember these experiences. The U.S. Embassy was all of a sudden invaded. The soldiers and the embassy personnel, they were all of a sudden overrun, and then the student protesters took over the embassy. Some of the hostages got away. The Canadian ambassador provided and got several of the American peoples out of the country in, in incognito. But the majority were kept. And there was a handful of prisoners that were released because of health issues. But 52 of them were held over a year. There was an election year, election cycle in the United States. Jimmy Carter was the president. He tried to get these people rescued. And remember what happened? Helicopter went in. Sandstorm came. It was a disaster. And it happened that when Reagan was elected and Reagan was inaugurated, some of you remember this, that within a short period after he was inaugurated president, the hostages were released. But I remind you of the hostage perspective. You are held in the embassy, U.S. Embassy, for over a year. You don't know what's going to happen the next day, the next week. You have no idea. And all of a sudden they come in in that February, and they say, you're being released. The hostages, they report afterwards, as you read their biographies and their accounts, they were still nervous. Even as they were being let out, and some were put in cars and driven through the streets, and student protesters were banging on the cars and were hitting the windows and yelling at them and yelling all kinds of cursings at these Americans. Some of them said they still didn't feel safe. They still didn't know if this was real, or if all of a sudden the cars would turn around and take them back. They were taken to the airport. They were put on a plane. But there was still a nervousness because the plane was still there. They could still be pulled off the plane. I'm not sure. I forget in my memory exactly. Did they go to Europe or did they go to North Africa for a change of planes? And then they got on another plane. Then they came to the States. And almost to a person... Those hostages said they didn't feel totally safe until when? When they got to America and they disembarked from the plane. 
And no longer could they be touched. No longer could those student protesters get, get their hands on them. They were home. They were in a safe zone. That's what God has done for you and me who are believers. God has taken us and rescued us, but he has added to the rescue. He has put us in a safe spot. That is, as he talks about in this text, that he has reserved a place for us in heaven in the kingdom of his dear son. The idea is that God has done a work for us that we should be grateful for. That God has already, it's a done deal. We have a place already reserved in heaven. He's got a place, a mansion built for you. It is not this idea of a hope so or a maybe. It is a reality for all the believers, not just a select few. In fact, he writes in Ephesians, he says, God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, raised us up with him. We've not been resurrected yet physically. Look at us. We're still marred. But in the mind of God, it is a done deal. He has raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places. You have a reserved spot. If you are a born-again believer, you have a place that is reserved with your name on it. Nobody else can take your seat. And he says, give God that praise. Give God that, that glory that you're not walking through life saying, well, I hope so. I don't know, just maybe, uh uh-uh, it's a done deal. God has done it. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry if God's going to all of a sudden undo you and unplug you. This is grace. This is a work of God. This is something that we are supposed to be thankful for. And I remind you that since he has relocated us to heaven, he has given us a new citizenship a greater citizenship. As much as I am thankful for my American citizenship, I have a higher, greater citizenship as being a child of God Almighty. And I have a place that's reserved in the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, because we're going to live in that kingdom and that is our eternal home, we have a duty to live as citizens of heaven. And that duty as citizens of heaven, it supersedes our duty to our citizenship here in this world. You know, one of our men was telling me this week of a true experience. When they were 11 years old, their dad was in the military. They were in Germany. And while they were in Germany, they were in a church. They're in Germany, and it was during that time period where the Iron Curtain was still up and Berlin was split. And so their church was actively involved in helping some of those who were in the, behind the Iron Curtain who had been imprisoned for their faith. They would help to assist trying to get these people out of that area and then get established when they would get escaping from, from Russia or from Eastern Germany and they would help them to get established, to get, to get grounded and to, to start a new life. And he says, I remember one man that came into our church service. I'm 11 years old. I'm sitting there listening to this preacher and he had been a Russian pastor and he had been arrested and persecuted for his faith And he was preaching in the church service and this man this week in our church was telling me, I still remember what he was saying. He stood behind the pulpit and his arm was was kind of held like this and he never moved it. And he said, I was wondering about that, wondering about that. And all of a sudden the man who was the former, former preacher behind the Iron Curtain, he speaks up, he says, some of you may be wondering why my arm is like this. And that 11 year old thought, oh, he read my mind. And so he listened very closely, and he's never forgotten it. He said, that man told about how he would preach. 
and he had shared the word of God. They were allowed to have some services as long as they were following the script. And he said, often I wouldn't follow the state script. And he said, some of the people who would come to my church, they'd be beaten. Sometimes the police would be at the door and scare people away. He says, there was one day, he says, I was preaching. And as I was preaching, he said, I was doing this like I normally do, holding up and saying, we need to follow the word of God, follow the word of God, follow the word of God. Boom, the back door opened up. In walked some officer with some other soldiers from the secret police. They walked to the front, and two of the soldiers grabbed the preacher, threw his Bible on the ground, and the commander looked around the audience, and then he nodded to the soldiers, and they stretched out the man's arm across his pulpit. Another one took his rifle and beat his arm to a pulp. He said, I was writhing in pain. I fell to the floor, knowing that I had serious damage in my arm. And the commander standing there laughed, and he says, now we'll see what your God can do. Oh, by the way, we told the hospital and the doctors in town not to treat you. If they treat you, they'll get the same treatment. So he says, the officer turned, and as he walked out the door, he turned again, and he said, now let's see what you do for your God. Was it worth it? The 11-year-old boy, man now and from our church, said, I remember his last this last statement he made as he told that story. He said the man, you know, was standing there and just recalled how he was beaten for the faith. And then the man said, but they forgot something. They forgot I still had a left arm by which to hold up the word of God. That was so impressionable upon that 11-year-old, he's remembered it to this day. That that man went on to speak about a citizenship in heaven that calls for duty, sacrifice, and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God has rescued us. God has relocated us to a new and heavenly kingdom that is reserved for us. But God has done something else. He has redeemed us. In verse 14, he wraps up this section as we'll wrap it up, where he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You need to dissect the words. The two important words here are redemption and forgiveness. The word redemption means to pay a ransom to set somebody free, to emancipate somebody. And he makes it very clear in this verse that this is what Jesus did. And by the way, I remind you, this was Jesus' job. Jesus came to give his life a ransom. Jesus provides eternal ransom, same word. Jesus came and gave his life a ransom to be testified in due time. This was the job of Jesus Christ. This is why he came, to ransom us, to redeem us. But then he talks about the forgiveness of sins. The word that he uses here is translated with multiple different ideas in our English, but it all means the same thing. It has the idea to send something away, to cast it far from you. Obviously, your minds, immediately you're saying to yourself, oh yeah, he cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Oh yeah, as far as the east is from the west, he's cast our sins from us. That's what he promised to do. That's what Paul says he did, and we ought to give thanks for, that God has redeemed us. And I remind you, it's not a result of our own efforts that we're redeemed. He didn't say, give God thanks, because in you, you have redemption. He says, no, no, it's in whom. Somebody has done this for you. 
That somebody is Jesus Christ. It's not a church. It's not an institution. It's not, a, it's not an act of baptism. It's not giving money. It's not dressing a certain way, looking a certain way. It's not being birthed into our families. It's not being more Americans. It's not having a Bible with you. It's in a person. And not, not, some ins, not some organization. It's in Christ and it's because of his death. In whom we have redemption, he says, the forgiveness of sins in his blood. I'm glad Jesus was born. I'm glad that he taught what he taught. I'm glad he gave a great example. But it was his death that gives us forgiveness. His death on the cross that he paid it all with his blood and then resurrected as God accepted the payment. And he says, this is what we should be thankful for. This is what we should give praise for. That God has redeemed all of us who are believers. Not just a few. We don't come to church and say, well, maybe I'll become one of the elite. Maybe I'll rank into the 144,000. No. He's redeemed all of us who have become believers. It is something that we have right now. We have redemption. We have the forgiveness. Not a hope so. I grew up in a church that told us we could never know. We would never have the knowledge. We, we didn't know if we would make it into heaven. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, even after we died, we were told we couldn't know for sure. It's maybe, depends on what people do for you who are left behind. But my Bible says, give God praise because in whom we right now have redemption. Isn't that a blessed truth? That you know you have a place reserved in heaven, that you know that it's there, but only if you accept it. Only if you say, apply it to me. Oh, here we go. Let me see if I can make it simple. So Harlan and I go out for a lunch if we find a place that's serving. And we sit there and we talk and we have a great time. Who wouldn't have a great time with Harlan? And we're having good fellowship and then somebody's got to pay for the meal and at the end Harlan says, hey, I'll pay. And I say, oh, no, 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 no. I'll pay for my own. I'll, you know, uh, you know your, your money's no good here. You would say, oh no, let Harlan pay. Okay. Right. But what if I say no? No, no, it's there, it's an offer. If I don't let him pay, I'm on my own. If you don't let Christ pay for your sins, and he's already made the arrangements, he's already settled it with the Father, but unless you take it, you allow it to be applied to your bill, it does you no good. It does you no good. And in this text, he's writing to a group of people who they are all saying, we've let Jesus pay our bill. We've already asked Jesus. And he's writing to remind them, listen, if he's paid your bill, you are blessed. You have been readied. You have been rescued. You've been relocated. You've been redeemed. Give him praise. Give him glory. Give him thanksgiving. And you stop and ask, when's the last time you prayed for a more thankful spirit? Number one. When's the last time that you took time to praise him for this redemption? I know we sang some songs about it. But when we sing, sometimes our minds are drifting everywhere. When is your spirit saying, I am worshiping you. I am praising you because you have done this work in my heart. When's the last time you as parents took your kids and said, let's have a time of giving thanks that we're all, we've all prayed, we've gotten saved, and we're going to be in heaven together. Now, when you're on your deathbed and you're thinking about your kids being with you in heaven, that's what counts. That's what makes the difference. The idea here is that you and I are to be giving praise, to be giving thanks because of what Christ has done for us.
I'll take you back to one final stop, thought. We're in 1941. Auschwitz is going. And it's one of the most horrid prison camps throughout all of Europe. Many people are there. One day they gathered all the people together, all the prisoners, and they have them lined up. While they have them lined up, the commandant comes forward. And he has a rule at this time. His rule is if one of the prisoners escapes, ten of the prisoners will die as punishment. And he randomly picks out the prisoners. Somebody escaped. The next day he's got everybody gathered together and he's just randomly picking out ten people who will be killed because of that one person escaping. So he's got nine, they're brought to the front, they're weeping, they're, they're crying, they're petrified, and he calls out the last name of a Pole that's been in prison there, Gajowski. The man comes forward and he's shivering and he is shaking like everybody else. He's got his hat in hand and as he's trembling, he comes before the commandant and he looks at him and he says, please, please, I have a wife, I have children. And he's begging, stern, stoic, not responding. And then something happened that everybody remembered afterwards. Somebody moved out of line. The rule was if you moved out of line, you could be shot immediately. Somebody's moving through the prisoners' ranks. They're coming this way to get into the area where they can walk forward. The guards are raising rifles, but then they pause and they do nothing. They allow the prisoner to keep coming forward. He's not shaking. He's not scared. He's not nervous. He comes with stoic calmness, comes to the very front, stands before the commandant, and he says, Sir, may I ask a request? The commandant nods. The man speaks up. He says, I'm old, I'm getting sick. Let me take the place of, of Gajowski. Let me die in his stead. The commandant just stares at him. He can't believe this man is so calm. This man is sacrificing his own life. He gives the nod. Gajowski gets pushed back into his line. Kolb with the other nine are taken. Their way of execution, they don't want to waste bullets. They put him in a cell and they don't feed him any water or any food and let him expire that way. Kolb is the last man to survive of those ten. On August 14th, he is still alive. So the orders go to inject him with poison. So he dies quickly. It wasn't but a few months after that that the prison camp is, is done and the prisoners are released and Gajowski makes his way back. He survived it gets back to Poland, and then he starts a practice in the rest of his natural life. Every August 14th, he journeys to Auschwitz in order to pay tribute, to give thanks for the sacrifice that Kolb made so that he could live. That was man on man in a wartime. My friend, somebody has made an even greater sacrifice for you. They have taken your eternal damnation and we on every Sunday are to be gathering and giving him praise. We are to be giving him worship. May I, read, may I suggest this this week? Instead of getting so upset by life's circumstances, would you take time this week to praise God for what sacrifice he's made for you? Give him praise, give him glory that he loved you so much that he took your eternal damnation upon himself. Would you be so gracious this week 
as to share in worship your thanksgiving, your praise, your gratitude for what God has done and tell it to somebody else. Plead with some family member, some co-worker, some friend, some, somebody neighbor and let them know what Christ has done and give him the glory for it. If you are here this morning, you're listening to me and you aren't sure that you're on your way to heaven, won't you this day accept his payment and allow him to pick up the tab for your sin and to give you eternal life? We serve a gracious God. We serve a mighty God. But this week, let's remember, we serve a loving, loving, completely sold out to us God who readied us, rescued us, relocated us, and redeemed us. For that, we should give him praise and glory.